Welcome to Bitch Talk, booze interviews straight from the heart of San Francisco. I'm Erin. That's Ange. Hi. That's Char. Hello. You can find us at bitchtalkpodcast.com where you can sign up for our monthly e-news. For behind-the-scenes videos and two-minute clips of our interviews, head to our YouTube channel and subscribe. You can find us every other Thursday morning at 9.30 a.m. at bff.fm. And if you like what you hear, rate and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. For the love of God, do it. It really helps. We are very excited to bring you this interview about a really important, beautiful documentary called A Place to Breathe. Right now we have the director and producer, Michelle Grace Steinberg, and the producer, Robin Bykowski. Thank you so much for coming on today. Thank you so much for having us. It's quite an honor. Is what yes, I- thank you. Yeah, so uh, we want to give our audience a little taste of A Place to Breathe. So, uh, Michelle, maybe you'd like to introduce the film? So, A Place to Breathe is... A new documentary, it's 86 minutes, um, and it's about immigrant and refugee experiences in the healthcare system and culturally responsive community-led healing from trauma. So the impetus for the film, so I've been the nutritionist and herbalist at Street Level Health Project that's in the film for the last 12 years. So the inspiration for the film really came from um, the amazing power and resilience that I see in my coworkers and in my patients. And then um, I was on the board of an organization called Integrative Medicine for the Underserved and saw a Facebook post actually about a PRI piece on Meta Health Center in Massachusetts, which is the other clinic featured in the film. Um, And there's just a lot of sort of juxtaposition about the communities that they work with, um, this sort of integrative approach. So it seemed like a good way to cover some of the experiences that were happening bi-coastally in relation to healing within immigrant communities. Yeah, I, I do love that you you touch on on either coasts and and really the unifying force among all the stories. You, you go behind the scenes on these heinous war crimes that are happening everywhere from the Congo to, to Guatemala to Cambodia. Um, so I'm interested to know what the sort of vetting system was for our main characters. And, and Robin, also, if you want to chime in on on how you became a part of this project and, and you know, working with who you're going to focus on in the story. So here in Oakland, like I said, since I've been at street level for a long time, the community that we covered and the characters that we worked with at street level were, some of them were my patients, some of them were my colleagues. Um, So they were stories that I became familiar with. Um, And out here, we focus on the story of a Guatemalan asylum seeker who, um, but really focus on the woman who works with her, who is Uh, at the time was our Guatemalan mom interpreter, because a lot of, so I see most of my patients in Spanish, and then we have an interpreter who interprets from mom to Spanish and Spanish to mom. And so that story felt very important, because I think there's a lot of invisibility about the mom Guatemalan community here, a lot of assumptions about the fact that all of the folks coming from the South are speaking Spanish, you know, sort of not recognition of indigenous languages um, and sort of the the trauma that comes with some of those experiences. Um, And and then it was also focused on my colleagues, uh, Edgar and Shania, who are a young couple who are here on DACA, Edgar being from Mexico and Shania from Uruguay. So then when we connected with the Meta Health Center, um, they were originally founded to support 
folks from primarily Cambodia, Laos. Um, and so we were clearly going to work with, you know, a Cambodian family and the experience of their health center around that. But we were also really interested in the fact that even though they started with a particular refugee population in mind over the years, the 20 years since they've existed, that community has expanded and morphed and become more global. And so that was how we sort of connected with the Columbi family, um, who are our most recent arrivals who came from Democratic Republic of Congo. Yeah. And so you asked about vetting of the people in the film, particularly when we went to Meta in Lowell, we established early on a very tight connection with the, um, at that time, the director of programs, Sonnet Pugh, who, Love um, him. who, yes. who <laughs> was, who was in the film. And actually, originally we wanted him to be one of the characters and just of who he is and his personality. He was like, I, this is not about me mm. and I, I, I don't want to be in the film. So don't, focus on on me however I do feel he's his character and his story is a through line through the film but we we worked with him and the meta staff pretty closely in identifying people that um that would were open and um to being vulnerable in a way to tell their stories uh because this we were really mindful of the fact that um you know, we're following people around with a, a camera and it's that's very intrusive. But then even more importantly, as people are talking about their own experiences and trauma, we didn't want to re-traumatize mm. people as well. And that was, uh, so we needed to ensure that we had folks that were a little bit aware of the process. And then also at the same time, ensure that they had support that they needed within the health center and, and their greater community so that if stuff did come up, then we, um, that it, that there, there was help for them and support. So um, that was really important for us in that, you know, in vetting or identifying people. And we went through a, a process with, with folks and interviewing where people came in and asked, we, we did interviews with them and then and they decided they didn't want to be, um, in the film. So we're like, okay, we're, we're not pushing this mm -hmm. at all. And um, from that, we were really fortunate to find people who were able to share their stories with us. Yeah, that's, oh, go ahead, Michelle. Sorry. No, no, I just wanted to add. So first of all, it's a little bit rare for us for Robin and I to be speaking about it without the presence of some of the people in the film, because for us, it's really important um, for me and all the films I make. I mean, it, it's not my story. It's somebody else's story and they're giving me the privilege of, of telling that story. So having them be part of, you know, discussing the story and looking at the process is really important for Robin and I both sort of, especially working cross-culturally, cross um, there's a certain level of accountability that we feel like needs to be in place as to how we hold those stories. Um, and the other thing I kind of wanted to add to what Robin said about Sonnet's reaction was, um, it was interesting because it's not the first time we've kind of encountered, I think in, you know, in Western documentary, there's a lot of sort of like pressure to focus on the individual, which mm -hmm. I think in turn reflects the individualism of our, our society in a lot of ways. And in 
you know, our experience in our last film working with Ohlone and, and indigenous communities in our experience with most of the communities in this film. Um, I, I think that, you know, and, and honestly why I'm kind of drawn to, to these stories is that they are community stories. They are collective stories. They are not, they, they can be about individual experiences, but the way that they're intertwined with the wellness and whole of the community is extremely important to everyone involved. And I know that I get very frustrated because I, I mean, I'm sure you're both familiar with this as well when you're sort of applying for film grants and trying to pitch mm. things. Like that. <laughs> People just want you to have like one character or two characters. And for me, it's like, you can't really tell this story with one or two characters because it's about interconnection. It's about interdependence. And whether that's, you know, around healing, whether that's around, you know, in our last film around culture and language, like, and it's just, I think it was really interesting to sort of encounter that again, that sense from people of sort of a modesty around their role as an individual and really an emphasis on looking at the community as a whole. Thank you for adding that. Um, I loved Pew, correct? Um, Sonnet, yeah. I'm sorry, say that again? His first name is Sonnet. Sonnet. Um, I loved that he described this work as providing Western medicine with cultural competency. And I wondered um, between, uh, I know you covered Lowell and you covered um, Street Level Health Project, but how many of these types of, of places are um, offered across the United States? Is, is this a normal thing in big cities or is it just the few um, here and there throughout the country? Um, I would say not enough, <laughs> for sure. I mean, I think one of my motivations in, in initially diving into the film was using the film as a model of what culturally responsive care can look like. And I actually, um, there's two terms that I actually prefer to cultural competency, which is cultural responsiveness and, and cultural rootedness. Mm. Because I sort of look at cultural responsiveness as far as how those of us who are working cross-culturally are engaging the needs of the communities that we work with. And then I think of culturally rooted as the work of people doing that work in their own communities and, and what they bring to the table as you, know, as you saw in the film, with the importance of that healing coming from people who have been through trauma and then want to do that healing in their own communities and the wisdom that they bring with that. So I would say, I mean, to answer your question, there are certainly other clinics around the country and I certainly wouldn't you know, begin to say that I know everything that's going mm -hmm. on out there. So I think in our sort of screenings and conversations, you know, we've certainly come across other models that are quite inspiring. Um, there's a clinic in New Mexico uh, called Casa de Salud, which it has a really lovely model that's very similar. Um, but I think, you know, not enough. I think in, <laughs> in a capitalist society that, <laughs> focused on something other than the, uh, the capacity of the care to bring wellness, but rather mm -hmm. on the dollar and the bottom line, it's not something, but, but I hope we're moving in that direction. You know, we're looking at hopefully using the film um, it, to create a multidisciplinary curriculum in educational institutions so that um, med students, nursing students can start early on working with community health workers, working with integrative practitioners and really get to know each other and have the level of respect and try to break down some of those hierarchies that mm -hmm. I think often keep that in place. 
Yeah, I, I love that you bring that up because I, I'm just going to have to quote Sonit again because he just <laughs> is so wonderful. He says, we treat people the way they want to be treated, mm-hmm. not the way we want to be treated. And I think that's so true in every aspect, even as a traveler, you mm-hmm. go to another country and we always have our American filter or wherever you're from when you enter another country or, you know, when you're dealing with another person. Um, and I think that just the holistic approach is so beautiful. Th- this idea of part of their medicine and part of their healing is throwing a ceremony and, and having a ritual and, and reconnecting their culture here. Um, so can you talk about just um, the importance that they place on that? And, you know, I think one scene that I really love is they're all shouting out what they need, what they would love in order to heal. You know, if it's good medical care, if it's this, and someone said, she just wants to dance, you know, they just want to be social and, and, you know, living in a quarantine for the past two years, we really realize how important these face-to-face social interactions are. And hopefully we'll never take that for granted again. Yeah, I mean, I think healing means so many different things, right? And I think, so that quote that, that you said of Sunit is, is Robin and my favorite quote from the film, really, in a lot of ways. I think it summarizes it, right? Um, the idea that we need to listen and we need to, to hear what, what other people want as opposed to making assumptions on how that's going to look. Um, and I think that, as you saw, you know, we included a scene from Dia de los Muertos, a scene at the Buddhist temple, a scene at the African festival, at the Cambodian water festival, um, to really show the way that the clinics show up as part of those community settings, which serves a lot of purposes. It, it creates access, right? So there, it reduces barriers to, to access and care, but it also builds trust. And I think that that's something that, you know, we're looking at in a lot of the communities um, is that people have institutional distrust for good reason. You know, I think we have it ourselves growing up in this country, but people have it, especially if they've come from certain situations of war, of trauma. And um, so really being cognizant of that and trying to break that down. And so being present in community, not just for sort of the crisis, but for the good things too, is really a way to build that up. I don't know, Robin, do you, do you want to add? Well, I, just also how we used it in the film specifically, like for us, um, it was important to show that each of the cultures had a community cultural mm-hmm. event as a way to like break down the, um, you know, just it's like a shared experience in a way, even though it's different cultures, but it's also how to break down people's immigration status too. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, that here's these shared things that happen. And um, I mean, not to mention that they're also like extremely photogenic and like, <laughs> and very visceral and in, engaging that you can just like, while you're watching it feel like you're at the the festival and uh, hearing the music and and being with the people so um it was just another way to i thought to for our viewers to be able to to connect even deeper not just with the people who are featured in the film but their greater community as a whole and just to like finish robin's point about the immigration status was that less about the festivals, but more about the idea that it was really deliberate for us that, you know, we included a story by people who are technically refugees, a story by people who are asylum seekers, a story by people who are on DACA, um, you know, and 
a story by people who are undocumented because for, for me, like, I mean, for both of us, like it was really important that those statuses be broken down and that the fact that everybody has a story, everybody has a reason why they're coming here. Nobody leaves their home because they want to, people leave their home because they have to. And that can look a lot of different ways. That can mm-hmm. be because of war, that can be because of economics, that can be so many things. And of course, I think we all know in many cases, this country has had a huge role in destabilizing places that mm-hmm. bring people here. And so I think really destigmatizing, um, there was a lot about destigmatizing for us in this film. So destigmatizing immigration status and sort of who gets to count as, as a refugee versus who maybe doesn't get that status and what, what that struggle looks like, but that both people have probably very similar stories, but also destigmatizing discussions of trauma, discussions of healing, because a lot of times those are really hard, especially intergenerationally. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um. If you, if either of you can uh, talk about the rollout plan for people to actually see this film, I, w- I would love that because I know it's on a lot of different public um, TV channels. Is that correct? Robin, why didn't you? <laughs> yeah. So um, we recently got picked up by American Public Television to do national public television distribution. Uh, we had our Bay Area uh, broadcast premiere uh couple weekends like it was like halloween weekend i can't mm-hmm. yeah um no, it's sometime not <laughs> 40 years ago. ago yeah yeah not that long ago but long enough that yes. it wasn't yesterday yeah um through krcb um our norcal public media and they they do uh, several kind of secondary markets in the bay area it um last weekend was in Portland and uh, Orlando, Florida, uh, Texas, um, and there's a bunch of other places the, as well. The states, the states so, that need it. Right. I was thinking, I mean, yeah, I was really, I yeah. Oh, you bet. I just got an email from an Arizona station. So they're going to be, I was like, wow, Texas and Arizona. Damn. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's yeah, progress. Was, and, and specifically it was El Paso. Too. Uh, so mm-hmm. um which i was like that that is great so mm-hmm. um so it is you know we we have the national public television we also have educational distribution through our uh education distributor good docs and they also set up uh what they call good talks so educational institutions can uh get a film screening license through them oh. and if they want to have michelle and people who are featured in the film to come talk, they arrange that as well. We do it ourselves too for nonprofit organizations and um, medical institutions. Um, We actually have one coming up with a panel, um, UCSF's Prime US program. Um, So we are still working on how to make like home video on demand. Mm, available mm-hmm. for folks uh throughout you know a few times a year we'll we'll offer it for free you, last year this past year we did it uh weekend for um an um you know tribute for world refugee and immigration day in june so um because we really do want to make sure that the film is available and accessible 
And I mean, Robin kind of skipped, but so basically we had worked on the film for four years. Um, we started working on it in 2016 and then we were just finishing it, it up. Uh, right. Like, literally when the pandemic hit. So we had an artist residency through Wexner Center for the Arts in, in Ohio and had flown out there to do sort of the first round of color correction and, and sound. And then we were literally due to fly out to finish the damn thing. And I was like sitting at my kitchen table, like, you know, March 10th. Hours. Like, yeah, I mean, I had my flight and I was just sitting there being like, is there a chance everything is going to shut down? Should I get on that plane? Do I want to be stuck in Ohio? And <laughs> thankfully, I, I did not. And Ohio also said to me at Wexner, they were like, you're from California. Your rates are higher out there. We don't want you. Oh. So we had to do it all remotely with them, um, which ended up taking a little bit longer. But then we finished the film sort of the summer of 2020. Um, you know, thanks to the Roxy, we were able to come in and do a DCP screening so that we could make sure that that copy was okay. And then the film premiered with DocFest in 2020, in September 2020. And we did do, we did probably maybe six festivals throughout the course of the year since then. But as I'm sure you're hearing from everybody, you know, festivals were highly impacted mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. because we, you know, we were hoping to do a theatrical run at the Roxy and Honestly, because the film is so rooted in community health, um, I don't feel like we're there yet. We, we just can't really do in-person screenings yet. So we're sort of moving in that direction for the spring, I hope, um, to catch up on some of the events we didn't really get to have. And then, you know, I think the legs of the film will ultimately, for me at least, be in the ways that it can impact change in health. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. And it sounds like you're already you're you're it has legs. It's moving and it's it's out there. And uh, on on the topic of congratulations, I mean, I don't want to ruin the film, but and we have to wrap. But I just want to say, you know, viewers who are going to go, everyone who's going to go out and watch it, you know, because of your film, you helped one of the stories progress in an incredible way. Mm -hmm. And I just want to congratulate you on your impact. I mean, making independent film, independent <laughs> documentaries, it's so hard. It's so grueling. But this is why you do it, right? You have your production company under Exposed Films, and you, you hope to make change. And you were able to make change before the film even came out. So I just want to congratulate you. And if you want to talk about just how it felt in that moment to realize mm -hmm. like, wow, this is, I mean, did it light, light a fire under you to keep going? I, I don't know how to tell this story without it being a story. Without ruining it. Okay. You don't but I can like allude to it. I mean, basically, unfortunately, Robin wasn't able to come out on that trip. So I was out with um, my friend Kat, who was doing sound for us. And um, so basically, Robin and I are a two-person production team. So I do all oh. the cinematography. She does all of the sound recording. And then in that instance, uh, my friend Kat was filling in for, for sound. And then I sort of was the main editor. Shirley um, Gutierrez also helped with editing, Mateo Hinojosa. And then we had our amazing animators and, and sound people. Sorry, yeah. I just do a quick shout out. No, yes, I, I always do. ask about animation and it's in my notes and I totally forgot. So if you want to talk more about that too, feel free because it was beautiful. I loved it. So good. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, totally. I mean, just to allude briefly to what, what Angela was saying, I mean, it's really hard to tell that story, but basically somebody was doing a very, very, very small, like five person fundraiser for the film, um, just to show a few of their friends, the little clips we had at that point, I think we were about halfway through and it just resulted somebody there worked for like a local senator who then 
was like, if that family is still having trouble getting their daughter over here, please tell them to reach out. So then I get on Facebook chat immediately with them. And then it, it resulted in expediting the process. And that's, people will understand it better when they see the film, but that's really important to know. It was difficult for us to think about how to, to put that in because it's, it's not meant to be self-aggrandizing. It's actually more the opposite to say, this is how difficult this process is. That if it like weren't for the fact that there was a light shined on this, this family might still be in this situation. And how many other families, yeah. you know, are still in this situation? Um, and of course, that was very strange for us doing this film. Sort of, we started it when Trump was not in office, and then Trump was in office. And I mean, I have no illusions about. I mean, in some ways, Obama was the deporter in chief. Like deportation went up under mm -hmm. Obama. So not to paint a rosy picture, but certainly shit got worse when Trump came <laughs> into office, when refugee limits immediately dropped. And so that was crazy. We, I was literally the night of the election, I was putting together a grant application and I was like going back and forth oh. between pulling footage of the Khmer Rouge to try and explain the mm -hmm. genocide to going to like the election results. And there was something very eerie about oh, that position. Um, but but in any event, to, to on a cheerier topic, uh, the animation, we got super lucky. As Robin mentioned before, it was really important for us that the film not re-traumatize anybody who was in it, nor viewers. You know, we're not trying to show anything gratuitous, though a lot of these stories, you know, involve a lot of violence. And so, um, you know, there's, as, as you guys know, you know, there's lots of mechanisms that that could have been approached, but I think we kind of were favoring animation, but it's expensive. And then we got kind of a late in the game grant from Berkeley Film Foundation that then enabled us to get two wonderful women, Anna Benner in Germany and Heloise Dorschen Ratchet in France, who were able to work with us. So kind of the four of us worked together on creating ways to animate these stories that would both hold the cultural specificity through color, through through style, through metaphor, but then also sort of have a universal feeling about how it was portrayed. And then Robin and I bounced those the rough drafts off to the family to say, does this feel like it captures your your story and your your memories? Mm -hmm. And so it was it was a really and then Elton Bradman was our our sound guy and his soundscapes and and music. I mean, I, the animations would not have felt the same without those. So yeah, Robin and I are very grateful for everybody who worked with us on this. I think Michelle said okay. it quite well, but yeah, I mean, of our two animators living in Europe and having, I, I think we got a taste of what it was like to work remotely before the pandemic hit <laughs> because we were Skyping with them and, and, and going back and forth and having to be really mindful of time zones and, um, and whatnot. And it was, surprisingly like a pretty fluid process with it that I mean it was such a pleasure working with those two women I think that it it really pulled it all together mm -hmm. in a way that we were hoping to when we were first when it was just an idea I love hearing how supportive and collaborative this mm -hmm. film was and it definitely resonates through the screen more information they can go to oh. a place to breathe film.com 
Awesome. We'll put that in the show notes and everything as well. Thank you so much for your important work. Again, we've been speaking to Michelle Grace Steinberg and Robin Bykovsky of the documentary of Place to Breathe. Thank you so much. If you like what you hear, rate and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. For more information about us, you can head to bitchtalkpodcast.com. This podcast is created, hosted, and executive produced by Aaron Lim. My co-host is Angela Tabora, a.k.a. Captain Party. The show's edited by producer Shar. We're powered by GoTo Productions. 